0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribbon. Today my guest is Philip Jenkins. Philip is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. He serves at the Institute for the Studies of Religion and he is a prolific foundational author of seminal works including The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, The Lost History of Christianity, a recent work on the effect of climate change and religious diversity, and today we're talking to Philip about his brand new book, He Will Save You from the Deadly Pestilence, The Many Lives of Sam 91, just published by Oxford University Press. Philip, it's just a delight to have you on the show. I've read lots of your books. Uh, It's impossible for me to use sufficient superlatives to describe how much you've written how good the work that you is uh, that the, the, uh, the, the work is that you've written uh, and also just how extraordinary the book is that we're going to talk about today he'll save you from the deadly pestilence the many lives of sam 91 thanks for coming on to the show thank you very much it was good to talk to you now you by your accent you're not from waco texas originally
1: Right. Uh, I was born in uh, Port Talbot in Wales. Uh, I tr- uh, came to the United States in 1980, in the closing days of the uh, Jimmy Carter uh, administration. I taught for many years at Penn State University, and in 2012 I moved to Baylor University in Texas, and that has been a very good, uh, good environment for me. Very, uh, uh, very productive. Very uh, supportive. A place that
0: treats. The, Study of religion very seriously, and something of the breadth of the Institute for the Study of Religion, the ISR, comes through in this book, doesn't it? Because in many respects, it's an A to Z, it's an encyclopedia of church history seen through the lens of a single text, Psalm ninety or Psalm ninety-one. We'll talk about that issue in just a second. And when I say A to Z, I mean everything from Augustine to Zoro. <laughs> so how uh, did yeah, you literally? Yeah, so, so how, how did you pack all of this information into a discussion of the afterlives of Psalm 91? You know, it, it's partly a case of how
1: I got to uh, talk about it. Um, I've written books on a lot of different topics. I've written about uh, early Christian heresies, uh, alternative views of Jesus. I've written about uh, wars, and I've written about terrorism. Um, and I kept coming across Psalm 91, it kept following me. Um, And it's used in such very different uh, ways. So for instance, um, it's very foundational in the making of uh, Christian theology, so you write about that. If you write about uh, modern uh, wars, it is a very common feature in wars in that uh, people hope to uh, defend themselves, Uh, they want to invoke uh, an angel who will stand beside them and uh, divert the bullets, and even when I was doing something about far-right terrorism in the 1980s, uh, I had the story about a bunch of neo-Nazi terrorists in the United States, and they naturally prepared for their operations by a recitation of Psalm 91. Uh, and so the more I came across this, the more I thought, there might almost be a book here. And what was the deciding factor was I do a lot on global Christianity, world Christianity. Christianity is booming in Africa and Asia and Latin America, where Psalm 91 has acquired a, uh, a whole new home um, as uh, hospitable as any area in uh, the, the old Christendom. Uh, so in Brazil or Nigeria or uh, whatever. So um, with all those different uh, uh, attractions, I suppose, I had no option um, except to write a book. So my only defense is um, I was forced.
0: I didn't want to do it, but it made me. <laughs> Very good. So, uh, Philip, we're talking about SAM 91, but as many listeners will know it, as SAM 90. Can you just talk us through the numbering issue and also tell us, which psalm are we actually talking about?
1: All right. Um, the question of psalms, uh, there are different um, traditions. Uh, psalms uh, are originally in uh, Hebrew. They get uh, translated initially into uh, uh, into Greek. But very, very early on, there's a, uh, a confusion over psalms 9 and 10, which were originally one psalm, uh, but which get translated. as if they're they're two. Um, So Catholic and Orthodox people on the one side use one numbering. Protestants and Jews on the other side use another numbering. Psalm 91, um, even if people don't think they know much about Psalms, they know this one because this has a real rare distinction. It is the only Psalm that is quoted in the Bible by Satan. And it's a very famous passage uh, in the temptations in the uh, in the wilderness where uh, the devil says, um, why don't you really prove that you're the son of God? Go up to this uh, temple, throw yourself off and uh, uh, don't worry. And then he says, um, uh, God will send angels. You shall not uh, uh, bruise your foot uh, against a stone. there's kind of an added agenda there. Lots of people know that passage, but what they don't realize is that uh, Psalm 91 at the time was the ultimate exorcism psalm. It's meant to get rid of people like the devil, and the devil is quoting it. So the analogy I use is it's almost as if you're watching a film and uh, you see a vampire waving a crucifix and uh, gargling with holy water, you know, there's something wrong here so uh, uh, that's the psalm it's it's a very I, I won't you know quote the whole thing though it's amazingly short for the the impact it's uh, had what it basically um says is if you trust in God, don't worry I will protect you against these menaces you will tread down these deadly animals you'll be able to tread on these uh poisonous serpents you'll be able to escape from Uh, uh, from the plague. Um, A thousand shall fall at your left hand, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near thee. And you think that through and you think, if I'm going to war as a soldier, if I'm facing a pandemic or a plague, oh my, this is a psalm that is on my side. And more generally, if I'm just a general person going through the uh, evils of um, everyday life and the uh, uh, the different dangers, and I want stability, success, prosperity, what God says in this psalm is just take advantage of what I'm offering here. In fact, depending on how you read it, it doesn't even say, if you do this, then I'll give you uh, this. It says, you've got this already. Uh, And that's very attractive for people who believe in the uh, prosperity gospel, very successful movement uh, worldwide, um, which basically says is if you act like you have uh, this success, this prosperity, you give to your church, you're a loyal member of your church, and you'll get it back many times. So, Right away, uh, Psalm 91 is also very widespread in the modern world because it's the, uh, probably the charter text of the, um, of the prosperity gospel. So um, point me to an era, point me to a period, and I'll tell you why it's uh, so successful. But, but but just to sort of kind of draw this together, there are many parts in the world today, like in Nigeria or Brazil or in uh, the Philippines, where if you walk around the streets, you'll see buildings with Psalm 91, the phrase Psalm 91 written on them. And what that is, is they're businesses and uh, they're invoking that protection just for their everyday work. So you, you can see... Psalm 91 real estate, Psalm 91 boat rentals, Psalm 91
0: grocery. Uh, um, as I said, it's everywhere. It does make you wonder about the quality of the groceries if the shop itself needs to invoke the Psalm, but that's another question. um Philip, in, in many ways, what, what you're doing in this book is you're writing a biography. In fact, you use that metaphor, don't you, uh, uh to, to describe the way in which you're working through the afterlives of of this psalm. Um, And as you just mentioned, that the range of reference here is vast. Not only is this chronologically expansive, uh, as a discussion, it's thematically expansive too. I noticed references to Chuck Norris, Sinead O'Connor, uh, and a host of other theological worthies. We might come to talk about some of those in due course. But before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit about the composition of the psalm? I thought that the section where you talk about Biological challenges and uh, epidemics, and so on. It's just fascinating as a context for how this comes together.
1: Right. Um, Psalms do not come with uh, date stamps uh, on them, unfortunately. They don't have uh, copyright dates. The traditional idea was that um, all the Psalms were the work of King David. Most people would be very suspicious about that uh, right now. Um, But so, uh, so people try and associate the uh, psalms with one of a number of different categories. So it might be like a psalm of praise in the ancient uh, Jerusalem temple. Uh, it might be like a psalm of personal devotion. And you can fit almost all the psalms into one of those categories, except for Psalm 91. Uh, it is pretty much uh, on its own in so many different uh, ways. It's an outlier, and as I say, or uh, an outlaw. And what seems to have happened is it is a psalm against uh, disease, against plague, a world in which, as I say, a thousand can fall at your left hand, ten thousand at your right hand, but you needn't worry, it won't come near you. And that sounds like your hope in a a pandemic. And you can look at this in different ways. So you could, for instance, look for particular plagues or pandemics in ancient Israel. There are a couple of good uh, candidates. Um, But there are so many of these, it's very hard to pin down uh, one one precisely. Um, What I suggest is this probably arose somewhere in, I would say, maybe the 4th century uh, uh, BC, and it was against uh, plagues. But in a society where the link between plagues and demonic assaults is is very strong indeed. It's very hard to tell which is which. And so it rapidly makes this transition from being a pandemic psalm to being a psalm against uh, demons, a song against demons. And if I was I started to say guessing, but my, my supposition is uh, this would have been very widely used in the ordinary life and rituals, of people in ancient Israel, they weren't in the temple necessarily. They were in their homes, their extended families, and when there was disease, this is what they would say to uh, uh, to take uh, refuge. Um, it's a very loaded psalm in lots of ways. If you look at the um, the Hebrew words that are there, uh, normally if a psalm has a name of God in, it's seen as being very precious and very powerful. This has like six. Of the strongest in a row uh, so, so this is as the phrase goes you are loaded for bear uh, with with this one you you are ready to um, fight uh, all the evils whether they come uh, at you in the form of an attack by uh, by a sorcerer or a magician or uh, if they uh, come in the form of a, um, a pandemic and you have this very strong uh, image there. This is all about how your angel will um, w- will protect you. This is one of the very, very few Psalms which portrays an angel in something like our standard modern sense of a guardian angel stand, uh, standing over you. You know, uh, I, I've never written a book about the Psalms generally. There are 150 of them. And I sometimes say there's 149, and there's Psalm 91 because it it just fits so poorly with everything else, which may may um, explain its uh, its appeal. It really is a a magical text in many ways, um, which we have in uh, in our Bible. So it's it's canonical. People
0: can use it, and they can do very strange things with it. Now, one of the things your book demonstrates is that. The question of how to interpret Psalm 91 recurs throughout the history of the church, but you also show in the book that this is a question in the Bible itself, isn't it? So you you, you draw up Job, for example, and parallel passages in Proverbs, where some of the same language is being lifted, used, thought about, played with perhaps. But the question of the meaning of this explanation or or, or this, this, this aspiration for deliverance uh, is is a constant question, isn't it? Right, um,
1: interpretation both in the sense of how you understand each individual word, and also whether the overall idea uh, is, is is acceptable. If you look at the Book of Job. what what I argue is uh, there's a a moment there where one of the characters in Job basically quotes or paraphrases Psalm 91. And the reader is meant to look at this and say, this man's a fool. He's making these ridiculous statements that if something bad happens to somebody, uh, it must be because they've they've sinned. So it's almost as if whoever wrote Job is looking at Psalm 91 and saying, be very, very careful with this text. But the question of um, interpretation, um, the the text in Hebrew has about 110 words, and you can argue um, about half of them. So one um, example is virtually certainly at the oldest level of the psalm, it uh, uses the word uh, pestilence. If you change that Hebrew word slightly, you, you get the word word. So, for instance, uh, if you're a Protestant uh, or a a Jew, traditionally, you read something about the dreadful pestilence, the uh, the noisome pestilence. In the Catholic translation uh, of uh, of the text, it turns out to the bitter word. Uh, And so many great scholars through history uh, will write commentaries and they'll say, what is wrong about the bitter word? Oh, we know how harsh words can affect people and uh, what you can do in response to a harsh word. Um, Almost certainly, uh, it, um, it doesn't mean that. There's also another um, segment there, which is interesting, where there's a list of animals you'll be able to control and tread down these uh, uh, dreadful animals. And the animals there change over time. Sometimes they're very supernatural. They're like dragons and basilisks. Sometimes they're real animals like serpents and lions. Um, But... Again, the the exact translations, we we can argue about. So you get an odd pairing. Uh, There are similar words. Lion and jackal makes great sense. The way it shows up, it's more likely to be lion and serpent. Hmm. Uh, That's not a normal uh, pairing. One reason that's important is that, apart from its other uh, appeal, through the last 2,000 years, Psalm 91 is one of the most frequent biblical passages represented in visual art. Um, Very often people wanted to depict triumph over evil. They would uh, try and appeal to God for help. Uh, And the way they would do it is they would portray these scenes and they would let their imagination run riot in showing a holy figure treading down, usually a lion and a serpent. And whenever you see one of those pictures and you see them all over the place, you know that people are thinking back to Psalm 91. So um, it's like this issue of interpretation just goes on and on through the, uh, uh, through the story. And uh, uh, as I say, it, it turns into a major divide between Protestants and Catholics to the extent that not just are they numbering them differently. Catholic 90, Protestant 91, um, but they're almost reading different uh, different psalms. Uh, so you, you have Catholics who are concerned with the dreadful uh, danger of a bitter word, and Protestants uh, are worried about a, a dreadful pestilence or plague. There's a, there's a very large gulf between the two right there
0: now it's interesting that you mentioned there Philip the the idea of control over animals because one of the most moving passages in the book for me was um reading about some of the the martyrs uh, of the early centuries of Christianity and who were of course forced to meet um um lions and and uh, and so on in, in in the arenas and one one of the comments you made there was um to note that the texts that people do not cite can sometimes be as important as the texts that they do cite when they come to think about, um, you know, what, what God is asking them to do and to face. What does? What did you mean when, when you when when you made that comment? We have a series of early Christian
1: writers in the first and second century after the uh, the New Testament. They know Psalm ninety one. They write about it um, uh, a lot. And it would make sense to use it in the context of martyrdom. You know, if uh, someone is being martyred, uh, then, you know, they they, they know that they will have the uh, support of God and so on. But they're trying very hard not to use the literal text that they would use in later generations about treading down lions and uh, fierce beasts, because they know they're going to be meeting very literal uh lions, uh, and they're not going to tread them down. They're going to die at their hands. And that's the reason for what, what I think is a is a very strange absence. Why are they not using Psalm 91 here? And I think there's actually a very good, uh, good reason for that. There's one exception uh to it, the the very famous early martyr perpetua, really does use the psalm in the sense of uh treading down the head of Um, an enemy who ultimately uh, will kill her, but it's presented not in the form of a passage about a specific um, animal. If you know that lions are going to kill you, it's ridiculous to say that you will defeat the lion. No, you won't. Uh, You may have a moral victory, a spiritual victory, but you will not have that material victory over that particular wild, wild beast.
0: So we see this question then of interpretation and meaning in the early church. We see it in the Reformation period, as you mentioned to us uh, just a moment or two ago. But but this question of interpretation moves right up to the present, doesn't it? Um, in the 19th century, you give us some lovely vignettes about C.H. Spurgeon, the great London Baptist preacher experiencing epidemics of cholera in that city. You take us through examples of German soldiers in World War I uh, and so on. and And we find the same kinds of patterns of behavior um, often the same types of questions about meaning recurring again and again, don't we?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the classic example is uh, you, you, you mentioned German soldiers in World War One. All soldiers in World War One and basically all modern wars um, have used this. And then the uh, question is um, if a mother sends her son off uh, with an amulet or a text from Psalm 91 and he dies, what does that mean about the psalm and its promises? You know, I, I uh, completed this book during uh, 2022, and I'm absolutely certain that right now, today, uh, there are mothers and sisters in Russia and Ukraine um, who are sending their, uh, their menfolk off to the war. And we know the kind of amulets from that psalm that they would be including to, uh, uh, in their uh, uniforms. R- uh, Russians have been doing this for probably uh, 200 years uh, uh, or, or more. It is actually possible to write a history of the American Civil War based on the uses of, um, of Psalm 91. Uh, it, it features um, absolutely everywhere. But then, as I say, uh, it, it poses this real moral theological um, dilemma I can come through and say, I used Psalm 91, and I survived. But uh, I get to tell the tale. Uh, what about all the fellow soldiers who, uh, uh, who did not? Um, so I read a lot about the First World War. I can write about um, Afghanistan. I can write about any other war. And I'm looking forward in a grim way in the coming months to looking at my Russian sources and seeing what they're writing about uh, the miraculous um, deliverance they've uh, received in um, in Ukraine, um, the um, the last person who will claim a miraculous deliverance in war via Psalm ninety one has not yet been born.
0: So you give us here two and a half thousand or so years of thinking about this. Um, the story increasingly globalizes, as is your want, as we move to the to, 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 towards the present. After two and a half thousand years, and now in a global conversation, are we any closer to understanding what this Sam actually means?
1: It means what people choose to have it believe at um, at any given uh, uh, time. Um, it uh, depends a lot on our particular uh, spiritual um, universe. Um, I I think in the modern world, there are two great uh, directions that we can follow. One is what happens if you take out ideas of demons and angels and even take out an afterlife? Why do we pray to God for well-being or uh, intervention, unless we believe that something uh, really is um, going to happen, um, or maybe nothing specific and worldly is going to happen, but this is just an essential part of um, of what we do. You then look at the majority uh, part of the world, where there's a very firm belief that people will be uh, defended from what poverty, sickness, witchcraft. Demons and all the uh, the other things, so maybe the lesson is um, what we've learned after uh, two and a half thousand years is that the menaces remain much much more um, constant than we uh, might have thought. Maybe what changes is not the underlying spiritual universe that we are we are looking at here, but the cultural forms. So two thousand years ago, people were making pottery and bowls and lamps with Psalm 91. Uh, Now they're doing very spectacular um, music videos uh, around the world. If somebody says to me, um, where can I find a music video of uh, Psalm 91 from, say, Brazil? I would say, well, fine, what what do you want? Uh, Do you want a gospel version? Do you want a rap version? Do you want an uh, African version? Uh, style version. What, what would you like? I can find you uh, anyone you want. So I think this is a, a, a classic example of the basic theme, the basic substance remains the same, but what you're witnessing is an enormous efflorescence of different kinds of human culture in very different societies and very different, uh, different languages. So maybe uh, it's not so much a question of understanding as, um, as expression.
0: Hmm. Well, Philip, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we finish, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment?
1: Well, um, I, I, I like to focus on very narrow-focused uh, topics, and yes, I'm kidding. Uh, so my next book is on the idea of empires and how they make world uh, religions and how they draw the world's uh, religious maps and how empires are, the, I suppose, the unseen force in the making and the history of world religions. As I say, a
0: nice narrow topic. <laughs> Good. That should keep you occupied for at least six months, I think. Oh, Good. Philip, it's been wonderful to talk to you today about your new book, He Will Save You From the Deadly Pestilence, The Many Lives of Psalm 91. And I hope our conversation encourages readers to go and, and read this, buy this, uh, read it, engage with it, and, and learn from it. Philip, thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us today. We really do appreciate it. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.